Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will conclude our discussion of Al-Ma'mun's long and transformative reign. His succession arrangement is the main subject we have left to address, and we'll use it as an opportunity to tie up some loose ends. Afterwards, we'll have everything we need to reflect on the Caliph's time in charge, what it meant for the Ummah, and what it can tell us about its trajectory. Episode 60, Greatness in Retrospect. Feel free to disagree. But I think Al-Ma'mun had a much cooler Cinderella story than the eponymous Princess Bride. They both start out as marginalized, somewhat abused stepchildren and end up as royalty, but the caliph's journey to the top was far more action-packed and captivating. Disney may yet see the light one day. Until then, Jafar, the villainous wazir from Aladdin, is the only figure we find in their pantheon inspired by Arab history. You may have already guessed it, but he's very loosely modeled on the negative impressions of Ja'far al-Barmaki, found in many accounts hostile to Harun al-Rashid's close friend and confidant. I must profess that I never cared much for Aladdin, the character, and found him too uncomfortable in his own skin to make a good protagonist. But Jafar was dope. He managed the sultanate, kept a talking parrot as a pet, knew what he wanted and went for it like a champ except for that weird part at the end where he suddenly wishes to become a genie. Not to plumb the loose amalgamation of arabesque themes too seriously, I realize it is nothing more than a 90s children cartoon after all, but just for the record, an Arab wanting to turn into a djinn is about as ridiculous as an Irishman wishing he were a leprechaun. We can afford to waste some time on this sort of silliness today, because there really isn't all that much left to say about Al-Ma'mun. There's no dearth of material. I've actually had to skip a lot of what we find in our sources, as we come across plenty of questionable narrations about this storied caliph. Al-Mas'udi's entertaining history probably has more about Al-Ma'mun than any other leader of the Ummah, but almost all of it seemed too fanciful to use. So instead of focusing on the caliph today, we'll jump around and cover a bunch of under-discussed topics before redirecting our attention to him and what his reign reveals about the direction the caliphate was headed. Unlike Cinderella, it'll be much more complicated than an idyllic happily ever after. Before we begin our assessment of Al-Ma'mun's time in charge, we should go through his succession arrangement. The straightforward affair didn't really impinge on his reputation, it's more for completion's sake than anything. Instead of obsessing over the issue, like many of his predecessors had, Al-Ma'mun ignored it and prioritized the effective administration of his caliphate. You may remember that Harun al-Rashid had named three of his sons as heirs, Al-Amin, Al-Ma'mun, and Al-Mu'tamin, but since Al-Mu'tamin was removed by Al-Amin, and Al-Amin was killed during the Great Fitna, Al-Ma'mun had a free hand to pick whomever he wanted to succeed him. Maybe not totally free, 
Everyone freaked out when he tried naming a Hashemite, but he could safely choose any Abbasid he thought would be a good fit for the role. Out of all his clansmen, there were only two whom the caliph invested with considerable power, his son al-Abbas and his half-brother Muhammad. Both of these men only rose to prominence after Abdullah ibn Tahir had returned east to govern Greater Khurasan in 828. They served as military commanders and helped al-Ma'mun keep the lands Abdullah had pacified under control. Abbas was charged with Mesopotamia and the lands bordering the Byzantine Empire, while his uncle Muhammad got greater Syria and Egypt. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of material on al-Abbas, and what little we find doesn't give a coherent impression of the man. We don't know his exact birth year, just that he was a youth when his father appointed him to his first command. We don't even know much about the armies he led. Al-Ma'mun probably gave him some of the remnants of the Abna, so Baghdadi forces of eastern extraction, but local recruits from among the Mesopotamian and Armenian populations likely played a role as well. He had a few capable leaders to help him carry out his duties, but there's no consensus on how they did. Overall, our sources portray Abbas as an effective figure. He deferred to the more experienced members of his retinue and endeared himself to the troops by looking after them. The main threats he had to contend with came from the Byzantines and Babak's Khurramite rebellion in Azerbaijan. Al-Abbas's armies would go on to distinguish themselves during the offensives Al-Ma'mun ordered and led against the empire in the 830s, but clashes before then were quite limited in scope. When it comes to Babak, narrations disagree about how much success to ascribe to the caliph's son and his forces. The Khurramites survived Al-Ma'mun's reign, so Al-Abbas was clearly unable to vanquish Babak. Some sources blame this failure on Al-Abbas, while others say the rebellion was masterfully contained by the young general's vigorous assaults. It's hard to decide which of the two has it right, as we don't have a lot of details on the engagements between the caliphate and the Khurramites. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Greek sources are less flattering, though I should note that I read the following off Wikipedia, so I'm not too sure about its accuracy. Their histories describe the life of Manuel the Armenian, a Byzantine general said to have defected to the caliphate early in al-Abbas's tenure after some court intrigues led to conspiracies against him back home. He quickly gained the trust of the young and inexperienced al-Abbas, who was thrilled to have such a commander by his side. The very next year, however, during an assault on the Khurramites in Azerbaijan, the general duped the caliph's son by disarming him and his bodyguards and escaping back to the empire. Theophilus had just wed Manuel's niece, and so he was back in the imperial court's good graces. Our primary sources mention neither this incident nor the name Manuel. It's true that they keep things short and sweet when it comes to humiliating defeats, but there are other reasons to doubt this account apart from its omission by Arab histories. For example, one would think the caliph's son would make an outstanding gift for the emperor. So why didn't Manuel take al-Abbas hostage? Byzantine accounts also claim that al-Abbas was tricked once again a few years later, this time by being taken captive while he was laying siege to a small city. Arab sources say it was one of his generals who was captured, 
but that he and his men managed to break free on their own about a month later and rejoined the caliphate's armies none the worse for wear. So the jury is out on al-Abbas, but the verdict seems to hover between just fine and mildly inadequate. Let's now turn to al-Ma'mun's half-brother, Muhammad. The son of Harun al-Rashid and a Sogdian concubine named Marida, Muhammad was born around the year 800. As one of al-Rashid's junior sons, he was left out of the complicated succession arrangement devised by the caliph, and seems to have been too young for his father to even appoint him to any position of power. Like the rest of his clan, he resided mainly in Baghdad and took al-Amin's side during the Great Fitna. It was around then that Muhammad embarked on a lifelong project, one that would go on to have a strong impact on world history. We are told that late in the Fitna, when he was still a teenager, Muhammad started building a personal army using a most unconventional method. Instead of painstakingly assembling a power base through building relationships and alliances with the Ummah's leadership, he simply bought his soldiers outright. He came across these men in all sorts of ways, be it slave markets, through personal references, really anyone who impressed him with his strength or character. One of his earliest commanders was a Khazar chef working for another family in Baghdad, so clearly anyone was fair game. Muhammad did lean into his Sogdian lineage a little, and he preferred men from his maternal lands, so Central Asians from around modern-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and southern Kazakhstan. Given the chaos we hear about in Baghdad towards the end of the fitna and its messy aftermath, I can see why he valued having his own security forces. His army must have still been quite small by the time al-Ma'mun returned to Iraq, because he never tried using it in defense of al-Amin or Ibrahim ibn al-Mahdi, both of whom he supposedly supported. The peace forged in the wake of al-Ma'mun's arrival reconnected the capital with the east, providing Muhammad with the opportunity to greatly expand his mercenary corps. I don't want to harp on about his Sogdian roots, but it's telling that he instantly reached an understanding with the Samanids, who ran Samarqand for Abdullah ibn Tahir, the governor of Khurasan. The Samanids were happy to sell Muhammad tribal warriors, feared masters of horseback archery, for his use as bodyguards or whatever. Around this time, we also start hearing about Al-Afshin, prince of Ushrusana. Ushrusana was one of the caliphate's most recent additions, a distant principality on the eastern edge of Khurasan, and Al-Afshin is their hereditary title, like Caesar, Zunbil, or Isbahbad. It's not clear how Muhammad met Al-Afshin, but the latter quickly became the Abbasid's right-hand man, and he brought with him thousands of loyal warriors. The best estimates we have on Muhammad's overall army after this point is around 4,000, 1 to 2,000 Sagrian slave soldiers, and 2 to 3,000 Ushrusaniya, both of whom the Arabs referred to as Turks. Let's take a minute to unpack a couple of these labels. Slave soldiers is a pretty inaccurate descriptor but it is nonetheless how modern scholarship refers to the men Muhammad bought for his armies. It's true that many were procured, but the reality was a lot more complicated than it might seem at first glance. 
The term slave soldier doesn't really hold up if you think about it. After all, you can't both arm and coerce someone. Also, if a soldier didn't want to fight, they weren't going to be very effective anyway. So there must have been significant buy-in from these folks. At first, Muhammad carefully picked those who had the right disposition, and later on, the Samanids knew exactly what types to send him. In order for these men to be allowed to wield weapons, they had to become Muslims, which meant they had to be freed. As Muhammad's Mawadi, their abiding loyalty was expected, and as free Muslims they could get married and have kids who were themselves free. Their enslavement was limited to their vocation. They were to be soldiers for life. As for the word Turk, the Arabs applied it liberally to any tribal horse people they encountered in the East. I think Eurasian nomad is the correct denomination, but I'm not sure if it's more encompassing than I mean it to be. Anyway, the blanket use of the term by the Arabs gives the illusion of ethnic similarity, but we shouldn't fall for it. After all, they did call the many different settled peoples of the East Khurasanis, so it's likely something similar was going on here. One source, speculating about the origin and meaning of the word Turk, gives it an Arab etymology. He claims that Turk refers to the soldiers Alexander the Great left behind after he invaded India, all this based on the supposed closeness of the word to the Arabic verb taraka. It's a hilariously wrong take, but it does nicely encapsulate how the Arabs saw these people, as warriors first and foremost, so used to the horse that their ancestors must have been part of history's most legendary army. I should warn you that names are about to start sounding way more foreign now that Muhammad is in the picture. His active recruitment from among minority populations, whether from the slave market or the fringes of the caliphate, means we have quite a diverse mix here. There was Itach, the Khazarkuk he bought from a neighbor. Al-Afshin is already a weird title, no need to refer to him by his full name, Haidar ibn Kawus. Then there were the slave soldiers Bugha, Ashinas, and Khaqan ibn Urtuj. All these names will be important, but we can fret about remembering them next time. For now, just keep Al-Afshin in mind as the prince of Ushrusana still has a small supporting role to play today. So back to al-Ma'mun's reign. He charged his half-brother Muhammad with keeping the peace in Egypt and greater Syria. Egypt was by far the more restive of the two. As soon as the Abbasid was in charge, a tribal feud erupted between the province's Arabs. This became the first official task he delegated to al-Afshin, who took Muhammad's militia and swiftly whipped the two sides back into compliance. The effectiveness of this private army stunned observers. While it was much smaller than the usual army, which ranged between ten and 30,000, its professionalism more than made up the difference. Its soldiers had every incentive to distinguish themselves in battle, their surest avenue for earning personal gain and the respect of their peers. Following Al-Afshin's success, Muhammad tasked him with recruiting from among the Bedouin and pastoralist communities in the region, but that effort didn't last very long. When Egypt's governor tried to raise taxes on the locals of the Nile Delta in 830, a rebellion broke out which cost him his life. I've glossed over Egypt a couple times during this podcast so far, 
usually because I couldn't find a way to fit its isolated developments into our narrative flow. Let me catch us up on a little of what we've missed before we proceed any further. See, the Arab province of Egypt was centered around Fustat, a small neighborhood in today's giant metropolis of Cairo. While the city had a significant Christian Coptic population right outside, the vast majority of Egyptians lived far away, with very few Muslim Arabs in their communities. These cultural differences and physical distances gave them a propensity for rebellion, especially those who lived in the marshier lands of the Delta. Not only was their environment difficult for armies and strangers to traverse, but it also offered enough wild food to enable them to live off the land. They had a couple notable rebellions during Umayyad times, the second of which brought out the last Umayyad caliph, Marwan II, to deal with it personally. After failing to subdue them, he burnt many of their settlements to the ground and made his way back east to lose to the Abbasids. The new dynasty offered the Egyptians generous terms to get them back on board, but they had another big rebellion during al-Mansur's time which his Muhallabite governor couldn't handle. As for this latest outbreak, al-Afshin again rode to the rescue, and while some accounts say he successfully defeated the dangerous force threatening Fustat and beheaded its leadership, the conflict raged on in the delta. This all took place in the year 830 which also happened to be the year al-Ma'mun got serious about fighting the Byzantines. The caliph led a successful summer campaign against the empire, and he planned to repair to Syria until the next phase of his assault was at hand. While in Damascus, he was informed that al-Afshin was having a hard time subduing the Egyptian marsh folks, and so the dutiful caliph decided to go in person. He brought a Coptic patriarch with him to negotiate, but that didn't work as the rebels saw the church as sellouts for working with the caliphate. They proceeded to torch a small Muslim settlement and slaughter its inhabitants, and al-Ma'mun ordered his army to raid their positions. There are conflicting stories about a rumored truce after some very costly battles, but the result of the caliph's assaults is not in doubt. The region was completely emptied out, its people all killed or sold into slavery. Everyone joined al-Ma'mun's second attack on the Byzantines in 832. Al-Abbas and his commanders were there, as were Muhammad and al-Afshin, among others. Al-Mas'udi has an entertaining passage about how Theophilus trembled before the mighty host and wrote the caliph a letter promising three things if he would only agree to peace. He would free all Muslim hostages taken in previous hostilities, rebuild all the forts the Byzantines had destroyed, and even compensate al-Ma'mun for his mobilization expenses. It goes on to relay three clever retorts by al-Ma'mun, one for each of the emperor's promises. Setting aside the eloquent fabrication, the point is that the invasion of 832 was a big one, and a massive success. The caliph decided to stay in the neighborhood so he could plan and execute the piecemeal conquest of the Byzantine Empire. He sent his son, al-Abbas, to establish a base for his forces in newly captured territory and spent the summer around Tarsus, which his forces had taken in 831. In the late summer of 833, 
the caliph fell ill while en route to rendezvous with his son. He suffered a few sickly days where he shivered violently, overwhelmed by a deep chill he couldn't warm from no matter how he tried, before passing away. It was probably during those last few days that the caliph finally turned his attention towards selecting a successor. Most histories attest that al-Ma'mun officially designated Muhammad as his heir, but a minority of them say that there was never any proof, suggesting instead that Muhammad simply declared himself the latest caliph and began accepting pledges. What we know is that proximity didn't have all that much to do with it. Although Muhammad was at his brother's side when he passed, al-Abbas was only a short distance away, and so he must have heard about his father's sickness and returned to him in time. It does seem like there was some tension between their supporters while the affair was still uncertain, but al-Abbas nipped any potential conflict in the bud by informing his men that he had pledged allegiance to his uncle. With that, Muhammad ibn Harun assumed the position of caliph, and his regnal title, Al-Mu'tasim. It's difficult to pass judgment on a leader as long-lived and influential as Al-Ma'mun. He's clearly the best caliph we've come across in a while, and he shines bright enough to blind most people to his many shortcomings. He was in a truly precarious situation after returning to Baghdad, and that just makes the recovery he led the caliphate to all the more incredible. But even if he did manage to somehow put Humpty Dumpty back together again, does that absolve the caliph of having pushed him over the wall to begin with? Al-Ma'mun allowed the Sahlids to wage a war that literally destroyed the capital, and then he stayed away for five whole years. I'm happy to blame Harun al-Rashid for having the worst succession arrangement ever, but at some point, that kind of negligence is plain inexcusable. If we put the rocky start down to al-Ma'mun's alienation from Baghdad, we end up with the tragic conclusion that this caliph was destined to harm the caliphate no matter how successful his reign. His tortured relationship with the capital proved to be the genesis of two of the state's most enduring problems, the lack of Arab soldiers in its armies and religious opposition to its policies. Al-Ma'mun's estrangement from his clan unfortunately endured after his return. He did use a handful of them as governors, but these appointments were few and far between. Whereas his father, Harun al-Rashid, had once imprisoned powerful Abbasids for fear that they may try to usurp him, there were no powerful Abbasids to be seen during Al-Ma'mun's time. His brother Muhammad is the closest thing we find, and when the caliph was told of a possible plot by his half-brother, he recalled him to the capital for a year. The whistleblower was eventually run out of court, something which either suggests that he had made up the accusations or that Muhammad had friends in high places. In any case, the persisting gulf between the caliph and his clansmen robbed him of the ability to draw on them or their loyalists as sources of power. Even though he forgave them for waging war against him after his return to Iraq, Al-Ma'mun couldn't get himself to rely on them in that manner, and they never embraced him in a way that assuaged his distrust. The caliph was also isolated from the classical Arab leadership, and we don't hear about any Shaybanis, Muhallabites, 
or other tribal equivalents during his reign. This trend only got worse after al-Mu'tasim and his private army took the reins, but the rupture happened because al-Ma'mun never managed to meaningfully bring the Arabs into his forces. The vicious resistance al-Ma'mun faced after his position on the creativeness of the Qur'an became known also has its roots in the caliph's absence from the capital, albeit in a different way. The profound instability and mayhem of those years in Baghdad led to some extreme reactions from its inhabitants. Along with the outrageous brigandry came gangs of overzealous believers who fancied themselves righteous vigilantes. Spurred on by charismatic and indignant preachers, they made a violent mess that much worse and ended up fighting one another over power. While this behavior never resurfaced after al-Ma'mun's return to Baghdad, it is clear that the tenor of the attacks on the Mu'tazilites, and eventually the Caliphate, echoed that same style of agitation. At the heart of the fiery and inflammatory rhetoric was the message that official authorities were always agents of corruption, and that God had charged the upstanding Muslim with cleansing the Ummah himself. This was another problem that started during al-Ma'mun's time, and although he did not suffer from it at all, it went on to impact the reigns of future caliphs. While I am quite sympathetic with the caliph fighting for what he believes in, it is difficult to support his orders to interrogate all the judges and fire those who disagreed with his position. I don't think it was too extreme a move, just that it was misguided and could only end badly. If you really want to change people's minds on an issue, you should commit to a long-term struggle to win them over through education or propaganda. I honestly don't think he went too far, though. For example, his Qadi al-Qudat, or Chief Justice, was anti-Mu'tazilite and was still retained, so it's not like al-Ma'mun was some ideologue. He just hated his hypocritical opponents, and I'm okay with that. I just wish he had handled it differently. The handful of caliphs before him who had tried to tell people what to believe all got burnt, and so he should have known better than to try and define orthodoxy. His brief dalliances with the Hashemites were similarly unforgiven, leading to some friction with his clan and wider skepticism about the caliph's loyalties. Some concern may have been understandable at the outset of his reign, but even after almost 20 years in charge, the Abbasids still panicked when Al-Ma'mun went his daughter to Ali al-Rida's son, Muhammad, saying he would be honored if he were to become grandfather to a descendant of the prophets. I'm glad Al-Ma'mun's relationship to science and philosophy remains one of the best-known aspects of his reign. He truly was exceptional in that sense, and he deserves the recognition. Although Al-Mu'tasim would prove to be practically illiterate, the intellectual fires sparked by al-Ma'mun burned for centuries and were only snuffed out by the Mongol tide. Obviously, the entire ummah had a big role to play in this endeavor, but much of the credit should still go to al-Ma'mun regardless, as his patronage played an invaluable role in rebuilding what was lost during the Great Fitna. His inquisitive nature comes out in so many narrations about him that it seems to have been an abiding trait. While in Egypt on his genocidal campaign against the nomadic Delta peoples, he still made the time to investigate the pyramids in search of ancient wisdom. 
If you've ever been to the Great Pyramid of Giza, then you have Al Ma'mun to thank for the passage you went through, as his expedition was the one to dig that tunnel by the entrance. The Caliph's political record is decidedly mixed. Although he accomplished some remarkable things, the limits of his power were on clear display in some key arenas. The relationship he built between the state and the Tahirids served the Caliphate well and was the cornerstone of his reign's success. But their long-term control over the East eventually led to its independence. He also granted long-term control of Yemen to the Umayyad, with similar results in that province as well. More obvious examples were the Caliphate's inability of bringing Babak the Hurramite to heal in Azerbaijan and its reliance on a private militia to keep control in Egypt and beyond. But the biggest failure was not the kind of political development determined on a battlefield. It's the way the Caliphate is discussed in our sources. For all intents and purposes, things were going great, but there's a sense of distance separating the state and its subjects. Maybe that doesn't do it justice. Ultimately, there's always a distinction between the rulers and the ruled, but it suddenly feels heavier than that, more oppressive. There is less identification between the Ummah and the Caliphate, as if the state had become an occupying force that did not seek the participation of the everyday man on the street, only his compliance. Perhaps it's unfair to blame this on al-Mamun, especially because it had no factual basis, and there really wasn't all that much distance between him and the Iraqis. It may have been his religious tests, his Hashemite sympathies, or maybe even just a mistake, but for whatever reasons, the impression that the state was forcing itself upon the Ummah began to take hold during al-Mamun's reign. See what I mean about the difficulty of assessing the caliph's time in charge? He's more than okay in my book, but all I look for is someone who genuinely applied himself to the task and showed some promise, and Al-Ma'mun aced both those tests. It's the outlook that worries me, however, as it has grown steadily darker in the three decades since the downfall of the Baramika. Again, it seems unfair to pin this on Al-Ma'mun, especially as I can't come up with any alternatives that could have helped him turn the tide. But what's done is done, and hopefully we'll attain a clearer understanding of these alarming developments as we cover his successors, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. (music) 